nice thing about giving them that base education is that when things do change in the future, they're like, oh yeah, I kind of knew about that. Like I use glaucoma a lot as an example, right? When I start somebody on an eye drop, like this is the drop I'm recommending. It works for most people. I'm gonna see you back in a few weeks to make sure it works for you. Sometimes it does better on one person than another. In the future, sometimes this drop, the efficacy wears off over time. We might have to switch drops. We might have to add a second drop, you know, just sort of giving them the lay of the land so that, you know, two, three years from now, their pressure's sort of creeping up. You're like, mm, I think we're gonna have to add a second eye drop. Like, oh, okay. Like, it's not that they think that something's going wrong. They don't think that they're not doing the right job. They don't have questions about us. Like, I've said it already. So they're just like, okay, this is the next step. And, you know, I'm on board with what you're telling me. Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I had a great conversation with Dr. Amanda Leggy. Uh, we talked about nutrition. We talked about supplementation. We talked about life meter. But we also talked about practice in general. I had a great time talking to Amanda. Please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. My patients with macular degeneration want clear and succinct recommendations from me related to products and solutions that can benefit their long-term ocular health and vision. To do this for my patients, I need to be confident that what I'm recommending will have a benefit to them. And that's why my supplement of choice is MacuHealth. MacuHealth is specifically formulated and clinically proven to rebuild and maximize macular pigment over a lifetime. This results in enhanced visual performance and aids in the treatment and prevention of age-related macular degeneration. I've discussed carotenoid absorption on this podcast with Dr. Nolans and Stringham, and MacuHealth uses a patented process called micromycel technology. And this technology is clinically proven to increase carotenoid concentrations at the target tissue and deliver the highest level of bioavailability studied to date. MacuHealth has been great for my patients, and we really feel like we have the ability to help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. If you're not utilizing MacuHealth for your patients, Check it out for yourself by contacting your MacuHealth representative. Getting young presbyopes in progressive lenses can be tough, but it doesn't have to be. Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses are an introductory solution for emerging presbyopes, and they're available in select ad powers. This lens provides an all-in-one balanced vision solution for an accessible and great first-time progressive lens wearing experience. Learn more about Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses and get free resources to help start the progressive lens conversation with your young presbyopes at slorepro.com slash Verilux. And, you know, really what I was trying to gain from you at this point is sort of your perspective now that you've had sort of real-world uh, experience with the life meter. So, um, so kind of give us a little bit of background for the podcast about um, your practice in general, and then kind of your experience in, or incorporating that into the practice. Sure. So I practice at Wyoming Optometric Center. I am one of three partners there. We have six doctors total. We are an all optometry practice. We have three locations. Um, we're very medically oriented and um, we've been very heavily in the macular degeneration space. We had the first commercially available dark adaptometer on the market. So quite literally have like the most experience with that and diagnosing macular degeneration at the very earliest stages that we can. So that's been really part of our routine now for 
nine years talking about this stuff early and um, discussing it regularly with our patients, even with um, Drusen without macular degeneration and then, you know, staging it going forward. I've personally found managing macular degeneration is the time that it takes for education about patients, about the entirety of the disease. Because I think if you do nothing else but education, you have set that patient up for better success in the long term, um, where, you know, a lot of us end up saying, oh, well, you have some age-related changes, sort of, you know, I'm not too concerned about it, like see in a year. And it can give this like false sense of security, if you will, to patients, because now one, seeing people so early and two, having dark adaptation really helpful to pick up like those reticular drusen, right? Or the subretinal drusenoid deposits because their um, dark adaptation is so significantly delayed that it's not something that was really on my radar before I was looking at sort of normal looking retinas with 20 minute dark adapts that didn't make sense. And then as you're delving into the OCT, like, oh, it does make sense. It's this reticular pseudodrusen, which looks pretty benign. And by, you know, like the Beckman grading scale, they don't even like make the scale of like early AMD sometimes just how you're looking at the fundus, but it's there. And I've seen these people convert to wet without me realizing that that would happen in the short term, you know? So, you know, so pause there because, you know, one of the things I think is really hit on two points. The first one is the idea that a lot of people sort of try to undersell macular degeneration. You know, I'm afraid of using that term with my patients because if I do, then I'm going to have to go down this whole explanation path and I'm going to have to take time. But also, then they're going to think they're going to go blind. And I mean, on the one hand, you don't want to make patients afraid uh, mm-hmm. that, that they're going to go blind in the next year, five years. Two, uh, on the other hand, it's, um, you know, you, you want to clearly state what that patient has going on and telling them you have some aging spots in the back of your eye is not really clearly stating what's going on. So is that, why do you think we do that? Why do you think we're inclined to do that? And it's not just optometry. I think ophthalmology does it as well. General ophthalmology does it as well. Why are Mm -hmm. we inclined to do that? I think for a long time, we've had no real answers for patients, right? It's like, you know, here, take this supplement and it, maybe it'll slow it down. But then what do we do about at risk, like just Drusen patients? What do we do with early AMD patients since AREDS did not really answer that question for us? AREDS um, was empowered for that question, you know? It absolutely was not, but we, yeah. we assume that it was. And sort yes. of that, that's the way everybody talks about it, right? Like it's only for intermediate AMD. But right, AREDS one um, used beta carotene, which is not found in the macular, in the retina. So it was, and the only reason that was the case is because when they were designing AREDS-1, lutein wasn't commercially available. So it was just a, a logistics that they picked something close. They could use beta carotene fairly easily. Um, but if you're, and then AREDS-2, of course, didn't include early AMD patients at all. Right. Where I really delved into the whole like lutein, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin situation was really getting into the weeds in AREDS 2 where they did not include early AMD patients, but there was a lot of secondary outcomes that really showed that, you know, lutein is very helpful where if you had very low, and here's where life meter comes in too, if you have very low dietary intake of lutein, zeaxanthin, miso, which in general, CE and zinc are kind of my least of my worries. Cause even if you have like a, a kind of okay diet in America, like we're not generally deficient in CE and zinc, right. um, but we are very much deficient in the carotenoids. 
So, you know, from the AREDS2 study, if you get into the weeds of it a little bit, like if you had low dietary intake, the supplements worked better for those people um, comparatively. And the lutein and zeaxanthin worked better overall than the beta carotene version is, you know, theoretically, because now those are the carotenoids found within the macula. Correct. So I think there is something to it. We just don't, and I don't think there will be, to be honest, a study about early AMD and supplementation. No, and I've said this before, there can't be because of the, the natural history of macular degeneration is not a five-year disease or a 10-year right. disease. In the vast majority of patients, it's a probably 30 or more year disease. Oh, really? mm-hmm. uh, and so you're never going to have a, a study that, that one is going to, to give you all those answers from beginning to end where... You, you start with supplementation or eat diet, if you could do it with diet, um, at the age of, of 30. And then by the age of 60 or 70, we see differences in outcomes. It's just not a practical study to do. Um, and, and also, um, even, even within the 10-year data that we have, with, as, you, as you point out, in AREDS 1 and 10-year data in AREDS 2, even if we had included early macular degeneration in, in like, let's say, category 1, uh, with very small drusen that they classify in the Beckman category categorization as in normal, uh, even if we included those patients, you know, uh, what was something like like in AREDS one, there was like one in two hundred patients in that category that progressed based on the national based on in ten years to category mm-hmm. four. So, so you would have to have so many patients in that group in order to know what's going to happen for so long. It it's just not practical. So you have to get there with other studies. That's why I think is important that you're talking about is some of these other studies. So before we get, because we've already kind of diverted, which is fun. Yes. The, I wanted to get back to the other why behind. So, you know, you talked about AREDS and that's how we, you kind of said, well, why don't we want to talk about this as mm-hmm. early patients? Um, one is because we don't have, we don't know that there's a lot we can do for them based on AREDS. And then I kind of went over to AREDS. But keep going with that thought process. I interrupted yeah, you. And so it's a, and it's also extremely time consuming because while most patients know minimal or nothing about the disease, they do know someone or a TV show or whatever, somebody lost significant vision or they went blind from, right? And one thing we can always hit on, I just had a patient with significant geographic atrophy yesterday. You know, centrally she's count fingers, but she's still fairly functional. And she asked me like, how much worse is it going to get? And I'm like, to be honest, like, this is sort of it. She's like, so I'm not going to go blind. Like you're never going to go blackout blind from macular degeneration. But a lot of people don't understand that while it's visually debilitating, you're never going to go blackout blind. So that even with a severe geographic atrophy, she felt a little bit better about because patients don't know what they don't know. And there's a lot of stuff on the internet. I'm not sure where these statistics come from, but so for example, I had a patient come for a whole different issue but she was recently diagnosed by one of my colleagues like two months ago with very early macular degeneration. Like this is a retina you look at and yeah, there's some drusen. She has a delayed dark adapt. So I'm pretty sure she has early AMD. We discussed it and made sure she was aware. Um, but even though she was there for a completely different issue, emergency exam that day, she had so many questions for me about macular degeneration. She said, well, I looked up online and they said that I'm going to lose my vision between six months and five years. No idea where those statistics come from, but you have to like untangle it a little bit because now if we're talking about this and diagnosing it early, you know, instead of finding these people that are intermediate and already on their way to advanced, you find it early. I mean, truly, you can keep your good vision for decades, even maybe without us doing anything, right? Yeah. But at least being 
aware of it. Again, that's why I think the education is the most important piece with it, because even being aware of it, those are the people that are going to keep their exam every year. They're going to be more compliant. You know, it's not going to be, oh, my vision's fine this year. I'm good to skip like a year, two years. And then they come back and things are more advanced, you know? So just the education piece and then monitoring them and giving them like little nuggets along the way is helpful. But going back to like the time consumption piece, I'll tell you, I give myself the gift of time by doing that discussion on a whole separate day. So I see somebody, brand new patient, I find drusen, unless it's, you know, advanced and screaming in your face. I really don't say the words macular degeneration that day. So you have drusen, photos worth a thousand words, right? Love pictures the first day. Like this is exactly what I'm seeing. And I'm concerned about it because while drusen can come normal with age, sometimes they're not related to the disease. It's also possible that you can have an early form of this. So I'll bring them back on a totally separate day that I turn like an AMD consult. So now we can bill by time, right? So I take advantage of that where we'll do their baseline OCT and we'll do the dark adaptation testing and see where they're at. And then at that visit, I don't use a slit lamp, nothing. I sit with them and talk about the gamut of the situation. And I think what patients really need to understand at the very core of it is one, to be explicit if they're dry or wet, because most people don't know. Two, I give them the exact stage that they're in. So I have like a booklet that I give every patient and I will go through and highlight very specifically what's um, pertaining to them as we talk. So specifically what stage they're in, it goes through a little bit, the different testing, like why we do OCT and dark adaptation and photos, why it's important to monitor. But then I do, and I've had for a couple of years with this now, one whole page dedicated to like why I'm recommending in my office the supplements that I do And very briefly, but basically goes into that supplements are not FDA regulated because most people are not aware of that. And you can go, you know, I vitamin shopping and drown in the (laughs) sea of vitamins that you'll find at the pharmacies or Sam's clubs or whatever. And it all says compared to, you know, whatever brand name they are. Yeah, exactly. It's it's A-Rids 2 based, right? But um, it's often not, or it's not the right quality, basically, or certainly not the right quantity in some cases as studies have been done with it. So I've talked about, like, taking a little bit of time to talk about the importance of sup- like, good quality supplementation. And my favorite quote usually to patients is like, the most expensive supplement that you're taking is the one that's not working. Right. So, you know, you don't need to be putting stuff in your body that's not doing anything. And if I'm recommending something to you, I want to make a good recommendation that I know is going to work. So that has been part of my discussion for a while, but until life meter, then you just like assume everything is good. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, but like, yeah. Well, I, and, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, so I want to get to that because I think that's to my, my point about what I like about life meter in general. I made this point to Jim as well. Uh, and Harvey as well is like, there are some companies that have some of these types of things and had them out for a while, but they tie them to the sale of their product. Yeah. And and when they do that, it, it means that I can no longer be completely objective. And and what I can what I've told what I've told them, uh, what I've told Mac Health, what I've told Jim, what I've told, told Harvey is like, look, if, if I can look at this and a patient comes in with a with a supplement that I think isn't as good and they're getting good like results, then I can't argue with that. You know, I, I think you could probably if you could say some of the things maybe you could try, but I can't. And so I see, I think sort of they put their money where their mouth is. It's like, look, you're going to come in and, and at least now I, I can't say one way or the other other than saying, well, this, this supplement that you're taking that, that I think is probably garbage. Well, your macula looks just like it did last year. So 
okay, it's fine. Right. I guess keep using it. Um, yeah, because while but, I'm, you know, while I'm recommending, because we use more, we certainly use Mackey Health, but we use more um, vitamin companies than just Mackey Health, even for right. macular degeneration sure. within our practice. So I agree. I like the freedom to choose what I want to based on, you know, my needs, my patients' needs, the science and stuff behind it. So that's a huge bonus. Well, and it's then, just like, Amanda, it's just like if we had a patient that, that we looked at osmolarity and inflammadry, and the only way that we could, uh, or MMP9s, and, you know, uh, and the only thing that I could do would be whatever uh, Tier Lab or whatever their new name is, uh, Trucara or um, you know Quidel allows me to sell to that patient or allows me to offer to that patient based on the results of their specific test. And we just don't think like that as clinicians. And so that, that's one of the reasons I really like that. And, and it seems like you're applying it that way too. Yeah, definitely. Because prior, you know, while I was recommending my specific um, vitamin and supplements that we have, you know, there's some people who are on fixed income and it is too expensive for them and they can't like, I am a, a doctor. I'm not a salesperson. So I'm not here to like make all the sales pitches and have as, many, as much capture rate as possible. I'm here to make recommendations. This is what I feel is best for you because of X, Y, and Z, but it's your body and it's your lifestyle that you have to decide what you're going to do with it. So if they elected to take a different supplement, you know, even if it wasn't one I recommended, like, I've given you the information and you do with that what you want. But now with Life Meter, it's a much different conversation because it's like, well, let's see if that supplement actually is working or not. And it's made my recommendations a lot simpler and it's made the conversations much easier and patients get it, which is nice. Yeah. 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 It's awesome. So I, I want to get to that too and where you position it because I, I think the idea of sitting down with your patient and, and especially at that first diagnosis of macular degeneration, um, or as you said, macular drusen, you know, when, when you're bringing them back, I think it's very, whether you do that even remotely, you know, that could be done remotely in some cases, but even if it's done in person, um, you are sitting there and dedicating just the time. I think we need to do more of that across the board. You know, uh, eye care has become so complex and comprehensive eye care uh, has so many different nuances that, and, yeah. and we try to be um, aware of our patients' needs and our patients' times and copays and those sorts of things. But the reality is, is as you referred to, um, you know, as you referred to the, the updates in the in the guidelines, we can use time or MDM. But really, with MDM, you're capped out at in terms of of what you can uh, count toward is like two or more. So if I'm managing. Uh, if I'm managing 10 different conditions and none of them require a prescription medication and none of, none of them require, uh, then then I'm basically going to be capped out at a level three all day or long. Or even the vision insurances that we well, take. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so it's like, and yeah, that's even beyond that. Yeah. Crazy comprehensive exam. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And that's a, that's a whole other question, uh, a whole other topic. But the point is, is that really you got a patient that has glaucoma, a patient that has macular degeneration and dry eye and convergence his efficiency, probably they deserve, I mean, at least, at least two visits to tackle all four of those things. And oh, yeah. probably they deserve four. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, so again, I'm not trying to milk that system. I'm just saying that like to really do it justice, you need to have those deep conversations with patients at least once, maybe it's not every single time, but at least once. And then periodically throughout, throughout the course of time. So I like that idea that you're already doing it. Yeah, because if Before you set them up with good education, like the nice thing now that because we've recently incorporated Life Meter, but I've been talking about supplements for years with 
um, patients, nice thing about giving them that base education is that when things do change in the future, they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of knew about that. Like, I use glaucoma a lot as an example, right? When I start somebody on an eye drop, like, this is the drop I'm recommending. It works for most people. I'm going to see you back in a few weeks to make sure it works for you. Sometimes it does better on one person than another. In the future, sometimes this drop, the efficacy wears off over time. We might have to switch drops. We might have to add a second drop, you know, just sort of giving them the lay of the land so that, you know, two, three years from now, their pressure is sort of creeping up. You're like, "Mm, I think we're going to have to add a second eye drop. Like, oh, okay. Like, it's not that they think that something's going wrong. They don't think that they're not doing the right job. They don't have questions about us. Like, I've said it already. So they're just like, okay, this is the next step. And, you know, I'm on board with what you're telling me. So having that base education makes it so much easier going forward and then giving like little extra nuggets, details, if you will, over the time as you're following these people. You know, the, the, so that's, I think that's, that's key. I think, I think the, it's not really hedging your bet, but it's basically planting those seeds over time so that you can refer back to say, remember when we discussed that this could happen? Well, it's happened. You know, or remember when we when we talked about this as a potential, then that's why we're we're we are where we are. Where did you finally have the aha moment that you were going to take that seriously and not call this just um, aging spots? See you next year. Like when? What clicked for you? Uh, were you always that sort of rigorous, or did did it take something else for you to say? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna belittle this anymore. I'm gonna have clear conversations with my patients related to their macular degeneration, and I'm gonna call it what it is. A little of both. So the practice that I am with my partner um, is Glenn Corbin, who's um, pretty well known in the eye care world, and that was just his um, mo for the entirety that he was in practice. So I interned there, and then came on board as an associate, and then over ten years became partner at. Um, after that. And so that was just how the practice was set up. And I fell in love with that because it was, it did fit my personality and the educational piece, the personal piece. And so he brought it because he's very into dry eye disease. And like, we don't treat dry eye disease at a routine appointment. It's sort of like, this is how I got the idea for my consult is we'll do an OSD eval where again, the MMP nines and my gland um, photography and like the whole nine yards. So that by the end of the exam, all, no, number one, all we're talking about is dry eye. Cause that's a huge conversation as well. Isn't Correct. It? Yep. Um, so one, it shows the patient how important we're ta- or how seriously we're taking this issue because we're dedicating an entire visit to it. And it's not just like you're here and like, here's what it is and out the door. It's an intensive, like involved conversational um, discussion with patients about it. So one, I think I was set up really well with the practice that I'm at with that. But two, like we had to get with the program when we did adapt um, the AdaptDX, the dark adaptation in our practice, because as we did that and I was on the advisory board for them and like the science behind dark adaptation, I think is beautiful. It works. It's 90% accurate for the diagnosis of AMD. Once you rule out um, like inherited retina disease, vitamin A, you know, but it's, it's really accurate for it and well-proven. But as I was lecturing about this, you know, way back when we thought this was going to be an easy, like slam dunk sell to everybody because we can find this so early. The first pushback is, okay, we can find this, but now what? Yeah. And we, you know, and I had to grapple with that too, because even we have interns from both PCO and ICO and they don't have education about, they've never heard about dark adaptation. They have minimal information about macular degeneration, you know, in a, in a practical clinical sense. Right. So even new optometry, um, opt- optometrists coming out of school 
are hesitant on how to talk about this because we are still on a reds and like kind of stuck right. there as a, as a profession at the moment. And so like, what do you do when you're finding this super early or you're finding it subclinical and how do you talk to patients about that? So that's what really thrust me into it. And you got to figure it out because they're going to have questions for you and you better have the answers if you're going to go down that pathway. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's that's the biggest challenge. I mean, you've described a huge challenge in a lot of what you've said is um, how do you uncouple the comprehensive exam and do still an excellent patient job for the patient that's coming in for their routine eye exam, whatever, managed vision care exam, however you want to describe it. You do a good job for them, but then you also are articulate enough uh, to uh, describe what's going on and why they need to be able to to come back uh, and you and also brief enough that it's not going to run into this long conversation that is ongoing that prevents you from providing that other care that is that is such a challenge within comprehensive eye care yeah. and and if you haven't really well like thought through that process really well it two things happen well well really one main thing happens is you get well really two things can happen one is you get bogged down and you get frustrated and then you get upset at all your managed vision care plans and you don't think they're paying you appropriately, et cetera, et cetera. And we can go way down that road. And the other thing that will happen is you say nothing. You you sort of, or you say minimal things to just get the patient out the door because you just want to, you're on to the next patient that is going to come back next year and the following year or two years or whenever, just because the only value proposition that you've been able to find within that is what is the potential to sell a pair of glasses and contact lenses. Uh, and, and that doesn't do the patient service. And actually, that's not even what the patients want. Like, right. really, the patients want you to tell them, you have macular degeneration. This is what's going on. These are the things we can do about it. And it's very early. And yes, we don't see physical damage from the macular degeneration, but we see that your macula is not functioning very well. And right. so that's our earliest sign of macular degeneration. They want you to have those conversations. But if we if we get stuck in one of those two things, Right. Either I'm trying to get you out the door quickly because I don't want to talk about it because I need to get to the next patient. They have the opportunity to sell them glasses or contact lenses under their managed vision care plan. Well, okay. Or um, I'm just not comfortable with with having those conversations with you at this time. Um, that is that is the problem. That is the problem. Right. That's the with problem. All of that this, we, can, we can expand it to almost everything. But yeah, absolutely. And no, then, it's, it's ab and absolutely right. Generation, you know, we haven't even figured out as a scientific community exactly what's happening with it or why it's, you know, we have several theories and some pretty good theories nailing it down. But as a disease process, like we're not even really sure what is causing it exactly. So it, there's a lot of ambiguity with it. And we're just scratching the surface of it in the more recent years, I think. Emerging presbyopes and emetropic presbyopes can be tricky. These patients want and need additional help at near, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily and more comfortably. And we've had this lens for long enough now that we have been able to see the simple and how simple the adaptation has, can be when adjusting from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. 
When prescribing My Day contact lenses, you can feel confident about your environmental impact because for every My Day contact lens sold in the United States, Cooper Vision's partner, Plastic Blank, collects and converts an equal amount of ocean-bound plastic through their global network. My Day multifocal contact lenses will provide your patients with a great quality of vision and comfortable lens wearing experience, all while making a difference in our environment. So if you haven't started utilizing My Day Multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your Cooper Vision representative to get started. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to bill with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be billed together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients, and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education, for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. So let's move on. I want to know how you have incorporated. You know, I've talked to some doctors that have incorporated the, the life meter at their front desk. Everybody that comes in gets a measurement. Some people have done it back in the uh, pretest room. Some people are ordering it just when they want it. Tell me how you're, uh, in, you've incorporated it into your practice. What's the practice flow? So we're ordering it when we want to. We'll say it that way. We, um, Why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? I don't love things that are just universal to patients because patients are not universal things. <laughs> So we, we're very individualized. I know a lot of practices work with their front desk helping to, you know, finalize the sale of supplements or whatever tests we're doing or Optos or, you know, whatever the case is. But we really feel very strongly that all of that, the recommendations, the discussion should come directly from the doctor. And while our technicians are very well educated and they're able to help answer questions along the way, like we have some that are so pumped as they're watching the life meter, like creep up, creep up. It's going over 400. They're like, yeah, you know, we're having a great time. But we, as the doctors, we're the ones recommending it um, when we do. And I, I use it for more than macular degeneration, which sure. we can yeah. get into. But um, specific with AMD, certainly anybody that has Drusen, anybody's at risk for it, anybody that we just bring up, which is happening more and more like nutritional conversations is like, well, guess what? We can do something and see where you're at today. Like that's as simple as that, that I have. um, I mean, one, I recommend it often during the day. And two, we are um, charging a nominal fee for it. Um, just trying to make it very inexpensive. So the capture rate is almost 100% when we do recommend it, especially coming from the mouth of the doctor and not yeah, somebody else. Um, so I love that. I, I think, I think uh, one of the things, and again, you know, it, it's not a criticism of the profession. It's actually like one of the, 
the things that our profession does really well is is we do incorporate a lot of technology into our practice. The criticism it would, that it would be is that we think we have to do all of those things on every single patient, and that's all we do. Comprehensive exam, and oh, by the way, in the comprehensive exam, we're going to do a screening OCT and a screening visual field and a screening this and a screening that. And, and then we screen ourselves to death, and then we don't – and then one, we wind up giving the care away because we think, oh, well, I already know this. I got a screening. How do I manage this over here? And two, we bogged down our entire teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like that was my biggest criticism with uh, dark adaptation time. It's like, mm-hmm. you want me to do this test on it? Like what you're telling people is to do this test on every single patient over the age of 50. Yeah. Well, that's, that could, it's minimum. That could be, even if you're using the screener, that's a, that could be a six and a half minute bog down. Yeah. And yes, if you have a high throughput and a ton of technicians in your practice and you have a lot of spaces to tuck patients away, um, you could probably do that. But and in a practice like the screening of dark adaptation in either just as a logistical sense, especially when right. we began so early and it was the tabletop version and you needed that dark room. Like it was a, a logistical nightmare. And yeah. in our practice, we can have up to four doctors working one day at a time. And it's just it's just not feasible. But we are very good at history taking and the macular exam that even these tiny pinpoint drusen is something that we will bring up, talk about and test, right? Cause yeah. you just, I've just seen so much of it now that while there are the, there's a Beckman classification, there's different statistical analyses of who's going to progress and who's probably not for the short term. Like all of it goes out the window on an individualized basis. Like I've seen some people whose maculas I'm like holding my breath. They're going to convert to what, like any day and they've been stable for eight years. And then other people who look fairly benign and they, you know, they do convert or they progress to GA that like surprised me. So while I take that certainly into account in the back of my mind, like everybody's an individual and learning these people over time, it gives me the better options to give them their own prognosis, talk about the changes that we're seeing. And again, like, even though we're still in early macular degeneration treatment, because right now, even with the new GA drugs coming out, right, this is a disease of prevention. From yeah. catching it early to, you know, A-Red slows it down. You know, anti-VEGF doesn't cure it and it slows it down, sort of reabsorbs blood vessels. There's always a chance for it to recur. The GA drugs, right, they're slowing the progression down of GA. So nothing is reversing, nothing is fixing, nothing is treating the underlying cause of whatever um, is actually happening in the totality of macular degeneration. So thinking about it step-by-step as a disease of prevention, that means find it early talk about it early. And even as people are changing, like I will show them their OCTs by after, you know, two, three years of showing them, like they become their own little experts on it and know what's what we're looking for. But Is also- that bump bigger than that one was last year? <laughs> I think it's gotten worse. No, no, you're just looking at so one micron difference. And you're giving them yeah. sort of hard or like bad news. They're like, oh, okay. Like I anticipated this. I understand what's happening. Like, are you having any more issues with glare? Let's talk about, you know, a lens tint or something that we need to do. So you can- Aside from obviously getting them to low vision when they do need it, there are things that we can do, you know, along the way and just help them with these small complaints that are happening early on in the disease from monitoring and talking. So, so the trigger for you to, to run life meter, you said you see Drusen, uh, comes up in maybe family history of macular degeneration, nutritional conversation. Um, what else? What's, what else is your triggers? To run life meter? 
So I yeah. think diabetes is a fun one to do it with mm. because we talk yeah. about diet. Now, obviously, I'm not like supplementing carotenoids for diabetes, but we don't produce carotenoids as humans, right? We only get it from intake of, of diet. So unless they're supplementing with a carotenoid, which they're unlikely to be, um, it is a good snapshot of how their diet sort of is with regards to fruit and vegetable intake. Because, you know, the newer recommendations is two thirds of your plate is supposed to be plant material, right? For like fruits and veggies. And then that last third is, you know, your protein or make up the rest. So And the plant material is not supposed to be starch. You got it. <laughs> it's yeah. supposed to be like actual spinach, kale, right. you know, yeah. not even like corn is sort of like questionable now with the gluten relation and, and that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So um, I try to, I'm not a nutritionist. So I try to simplify it as much to my patients as possible. I think if you give them a very specific dietary guideline, it's hard for them to make those commitments and changes. But if you make it simplified and easy for them, really most of my patients that I see, you know, time after time again, have told me that they have, maybe it's not the entirety of their diet that changed, but they have made healthier choices because of the discussions that we had. Um, and like, that's, you know, that's the impact. Again, I'm not a salesperson to go out and everybody has to be on the Mediterranean diet, but patients don't know what they don't know. So, um, if you just give them that piece of information and then show them, even these people are like, Oh, I have a great diet. Like I eat a salad every day. Like, well, what is iceberg lettuce? Is that what it is? (laughs) Like, Oh, well, let's see how good your diet is, you know, run the life meter. And, um, we've had it since March. So, so new, but enough time that I get, I definitely get the feel of how this is all going where I would say on average, people that have like a good diet, they're the, the happy level is above 400. You know, I would aim for a little bit higher than that with people with macular degeneration, but on average people are like 280, 320-ish, you know, that I've been testing. It's funny because, like, husbands and wives are almost the same. Like, people in the same household are very similar Mm. to each other, kids and that, too, that I've discovered. Um, Unless, like, they're self-admitted. I'll have a couple once in a while who's, like, I just had a husband and wife the other day. The husband was 650, and the wife was, like, 249. And we were talking about it, and he's like, yeah, she never eats her vegetables. And she's like, well, I guess I don't. I'm like, please don't blame me on the divorce. Like, I'm just trying to, (laughs) you know, have a good laugh about it. But you can tell people's diet by measuring the life meter a little bit and have that very simple nutritional conversation of what empty calories are. I think people understand that, like sugars, carbs, et cetera. Like, they make you full, but they're not giving your cells that – that energy that they need to sustain themselves over the marathon of a lifetime. Right. Um, and then just talking about really in- increasing the the vegetable intake in particular, you know, fruits and color. I talk about on their plate a lot too. I'll give you a, a cool tip. It's sponsored by um, the American cancer association. I discovered a few months ago, it's called healthy 10 challenge.org. So it, of course, talking about cancer prevention, but it's exactly what we're talking about with AMD and lifestyle changes. So it's, it's free. It's an email program. So it's 10 weeks. They give you an email like twice a week. One, it gives you some nutritional education as it goes along. Um, it'll give you some recipe ideas. And it also increases and educates you on the importance of walking and keeping your body moving and, and that too. So it's sort of like this slow buildup. And it was a, it's a great thing with life meter for me to say, cause some people are like, I really don't want to supplement and, you know, I'd rather try to do this with diet. And I'm like, that's great. One, it's hard to do, um, which is a whole other conversation as well, but one, it's hard to do, but two, um, you need to do it the right way and be educated about it. So I've told this story before, but my, 
like nutritional eye-opening situation was my dad a few years ago um, calls me and he's like borderline hypertensive. He's borderline with his sugars and his PCP gave him three months, like get your diet in order and like we'll retest and then decide if we're going to start medicine. Right. So he calls me then at his next visit. He's like, so my levels are worse. And mm. like my dad's an intelligent guy. So never did I go through with him like, Hey, what is your diet? What's your game plan? What's so after that, um, then I asked, how did you change your diet? He swapped, you know, soda for Gatorade. Okay. And he full swapped on Gatorade. He full on Gatorade and swapped like chips, uh, Cheez-Its, et cetera, for fruit, which is all sugar. Right. Right. And like, I totally get why he made those choices, but they're not healthy choices <laughs> like for, for yeah. that type and for moderation and what your goals are to manage hypertension and, and sugar issues. So um, that was my eye opening. We'll say that we as Americans have minimal to no education about what actual nutrition means and what it means for our bodies for that marathon of life. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And it's, and it's, it's really hard to do. I mean, I even, even um, I was reflecting with my wife the other day, probably yesterday it was, and, and, you know, we were cooking even just to like sit down and cook your own food, mm. like cook your own whole food. It's one of my favorite things to do. Like, like I get home from work and we go around the table. I've got nine kids. And, um, and so we go around the table and everybody, my kids love this. I, I actually don't like doing this as much as my kids like doing it because it disrupts good conversation. Like I want to have, like, I want to get in the weeds of what's going on. And so we'll get, in, we'll start getting into these conversations and then somebody will be like, favorite things, favorite things. And so it's like, Oh shoot, you know, we're going to, we're going to have a good conversation, but I, but I like listening to it because they, you know, they tell me what their favorite thing was for the day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it probably gets them away from deeper conversations with dad. But uh, my almost always at that time of the day, my favorite thing is cooking dinner. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I've seen, I've seen patients for the day, or I've done work for the day. And I like all that kind of stuff, but, or I've worked out in the morning. So I, I'm usually up at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, I work out and then um, I, I hit the shower I, I kiss all my kids, make them breakfast, kiss all my kids, and I'm gone, right? I'm gone for the day. Uh, and then I come back, and I'm, it's usually about 4.30. I'll be uh, coming home, 4.30, 4.45, and then I'll make dinner. And so we're, we'll say, you know, like, well, what's your favorite thing? And, and it's like my favorite thing was sitting down, like, for 45 minutes and making dinner. And so they almost always know that dad's favorite thing is making dinner at that point. Now, if you ask me two hours later, it's going to be something different because I, I'm hanging out with my family. But I bring this up because somehow my wife and I got sidetracked into um, people who don't quite have as much resources as we have and noting a few of them who are they're like, uh, they, somebody made the comment of like, well, we always eat, you know, I haven't eaten this much um, home cooked food. I used to love to eat out. Now I don't like to eat out. And, they were, and the comment within that was that we were reflecting on was, that they had uh, previously not had as much resources. And so they were eating fast food a lot and, um, and how rare it is, especially even if you have more resources and you're going to your child's basketball games or your baseball practices and you're going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And you don't have that 45 minute time to sit down and even just cook real food. You realize like, yeah, that's, that's a big problem. And when, when we think about, like you're saying in the United States of, having a balanced diet, that means sticking lead, lettuce and, and tomato on your burger. And we're know, talking about McDonald's. fairly privileged middle-class people totally. in general, you know, talk yeah. about different socioeconomic statuses. So I do once a week in our, our 
downtown in the middle of our city clinic for people who have no insurance or terrible insurance, haven't seen an eye doctor in a while for diabetes. So it's just dilating, checking for retinopathy, educating and you know managing as we need to. But I had this one person once, he had just been to the food bank to pick up his weekly meal because he can't afford his own groceries or many of his own groceries. I'm talking a little bit about nutrition and you know how we need to control his diabetic retinopathy so it doesn't progress. And he's like, well, maybe you can help me because I just picked up my food. Like, can you show me how I can cook with this? So I said, well, you know, let me see. He opens it and like, it's just a diabetic nightmare. It's like high C, big gallon thing of high C. It was canned like beef stew, you know, just um, with salt. Salt out the and like, yeah. And I'm just looking at this box like. I don't know how you cook as a diabetic with any of this, but at the same time, he has no other real resources to eat healthier. So, you know, while I I love talking about being able to talk about supplements and and improving health, like there's a big disparity in America with how we're capable of doing that. Yeah. Well, and and even, even when you think about the cost of food, um, you know, your fresh food is going to cost more, even your frozen fruit food, you know, Mm -hmm. like your whole frozen foods, are not nearly as as inexpensive as something that's out of a box. Right. And um, I mean, I, like you're saying, it's a whole other problem, but it's one that we don't even like wrap our minds around very much uh, because, you know, because it's just, and, and then it's like, oh man, then now what can we really do? Uh, yeah. Frustrating. But okay, so, um, so okay, you've, you've, you've diagnosed them, you've used a life, life meter in those scenarios, you had a conversation about their diet, um, and whatever that treatment program was, whether it's a supplement or whether it is, um, or whether it's diet, uh, diet and, and exercise, do you see them all back uh, for follow-up on, on, the, on the life meter, or do you see if some I, of them back along with their other like treatment modalities? Yeah, I, generally, if I'm recommending like we're going to start the supplement, it's a three-month supply that I'm giving them that I just tell them when they're getting towards the end, they're, it's, they're due to come in for their next bottle. Like, just ask that we can do life meter, like, on the fly. Like, it doesn't take more than three minutes. So that's something that we can easily have somebody walk in the office and ask to do. So if I am not overly concerned about their retina status or other things and I don't physically need to see them, I've been saying that. Even with dietary change, I'm like, mark, mark your calendar. Like, put a reminder in your phone right now. Like, come in in three months and see, like, what kind of progress we made. And if you have questions, I'm, you know, I'm happy to chat if we need to. Or, you know, these people with macular degeneration, I'm seeing them between, like, four and six months. So we'll sort of repeat it and talk about it again each each visit as they're going, especially if they're um, more managing with diet than anything else, because that can wildly fluctuate from visit to visit. If And it also will show you if they're compliant with their supplements or not, too. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So listen, uh, Amanda, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but I also want to ask you if you'd be willing to come back on the podcast sometime to talk about other aspects of your practice. I find our conversation quite interesting. Um, one, because it, it was unpredictable, you know, because this is the first time we've met. And mm-hmm. two, um, I, I never know exactly what I'm going to get when I talk to, to different people that I haven't met. But probably the most important thing that I thought that I find is, you know, I work really hard um, with a lot of offices across the country on our office as well, like my specific office. But as a consultant, I work for other practices across the country. And, and one of the things I find that pra- is that practices that do things very well almost always do them the exact same way. And, mm-hmm. and they've arrived at that decision, not necessarily because somebody 
told them to do it this way or told them to do it that way. Um, but they've arrived at it on their own. And I think there's this process that, you know, I, I, that, that they've always followed. Uh, and you, as I'm talking to you, I think have followed this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would love to kind of explore that with you in the future, if you'd be open. Yeah, even with macular degeneration as a whole, I feel I've, I've been in practice 11 years. You know, we had the um, Adapt DX for like almost, almost 10 years now. So I've been like honing this AMD conversation for, you know, 10, 11 years now. And I, I feel like I'm just getting to the point that I'm really confident on how to do it. But again, it was a mm-hmm. journey for 10, 11 years, even though I was like trying my darndest <laughs> the whole time up to this point. Like it's really now that I feel like I've found my niche and how to talk about it and how to manage it and give like provable, better outcomes to people. Yeah, there's this. So I know you're talking about about macular degeneration, but you also brought up dry eye and you also brought up glaucoma. And I think that's the thing. I think a lot of people, this is my my hypothesis in short, is that a lot of people um, think, well, I can go to a seminar and I can learn how to do this or I'll buy this widget or I'll use this supplement and everything is going to be fine. And really what it, what it comes down to is, is that's not the case. Like, like really what has happened is you've, you have this certain identity, right? You, as a practice, as a clinician, as, as an owner, as a doctor, you get this identity and then you work through that identity and you implement these steps to, to build a process around that. And I, and I, and every single time when I look at people who have done it really well, they, they may not be aware of it. In fact, many times they do, they're not aware of that process consciously, but they've followed it. And, uh, and that's, what's really interesting to me when I talk to you is like, I can clearly see that. Like, I'm like, oh, I wish we could just clone what you've done all across the country and other people. But what, what they want is an easy button. There are ways to get there. Yeah. Because no matter what it is, right. Whether it's, it's life meter now or dark adaptation myself earlier, or, you know, a new OCTA that recently, you know, has, has come to be, it's like, while there's clinical trials and things that are out there, it's such a different animal when you're in the real world. It's just like yeah. nothing, nothing is ever textbook. Yeah. And it's yeah. that you, you gotta be sort of both confident, scared and brave at the same time to jump into it because it's a different conversation. Every time you incorporate something new, it's new for you. That's always uncomfortable. The first few times that you go through it, but that's like part of the process. Like you said, is just being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh man. Okay. I'm going to leave that for another time because we can keep going because I think that's so, that's so right on. Okay. So thanks for being on. Uh, I really appreciate it. This has been a ton of fun for me to get to know you uh, also and, um, and to explore these ideas with you. Great. Thank you so much. I'd be happy to be on again.